0: We really didn't plan to have studies that focus on worship last week and this week, but in the Lord's providence this is where we are. And as we all know, it is so easy to sin by being hypocrites, by showing acts of worship while, as Abner said a moment ago, while at the same time our heart is not there, we're tolerating sin in our lives, whether it's externally or internally. And By God's grace, we have to be fighting against this in order to be worshipping our king without hypocrisy. And this is the title of our study this morning of Isaiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Worshipping our king without hypocrisy. Worshipping our king without hypocrisy. We see this in Isaiah 1, verses 1 through 20. These 20 verses preach themselves. I mean, because they are so loaded with very important truths related to worship. And really, they're part of a sermon, the first sermon that the Holy Spirit plays here in Isaiah's book, preached Through Isaiah. We're going to look at these 20 verses, and to make our study easy to follow, we're going to divide it in two parts. We're going to look at two actions of Yahweh against Judah, that help you to worship without hypocrisy. Two actions of Yahweh against Judah that help you to worship without hypocrisy. We're going to look, first of all, at how Yahweh confronted Judah's hypocrisy. This 1 through 15. And secondly, we're going to look at how Yahweh corrected Judah's hypocrisy in verses 16 through 20. How Yahweh confronted and then how he corrected. Let's start with the first one, Isaiah chapter 1. We're going to read as we advance in our study because it's a long passage and there's a lot to look at, very rich. Let's start with the first one. Look at how Yahweh confronted Judah's hypocrisy, verses 1 through 15. Yahweh confronted Judah's hypocrisy. This is what the Word of God says in Isaiah 1, 1. The vision or the word of revelation of Isaiah, the son of Amos, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, which he saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. This gives us a historical background. The reigns of these four kings of the southern kingdom go from about 739 to 686 B.C., 739 to 686 B.C. These were the years when Isaiah served. This was a time of material prosperity and spiritual decadence. Very similar to the world in which we live. Now, look at how the first sermon or message found in this book starts. It starts with two commands in verse 2. Isaiah 1-2. Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth, for Yahweh speaks. Let's stop there for a moment. Yahweh, remember, this is pointing to the one who keeps the covenant, the self-existing one, the eternal one, the faithful Lord. Very important name of the Lord, of course, but here in the context, we'll see why the Holy Spirit chose to use this name of our Lord in particular. Here our Lord called the heavens and the earth as witnesses, as if they were people. Just as he did in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Back then, in Deuteronomy, he told them, you remember, that if they obeyed, he would bless them. But if they disobeyed, he would judge them. And now, look at how he accuses them, so to speak, in front of these two witnesses, the heavens and the earth. He accuses them for breaking that covenant. Verse 2. Sons I have reared and brought up. But they have revolted against me. Here the Lord presents himself as a father and the Israelites as his children. Yahweh, notice the contrast. Yahweh, the one who promised to keep his covenant, was faithful. But them who also promised to keep his covenant were unfaithful. The problem was them, not him. And verse 3 describes their sin with a comparison. Isaiah 1.3 An ox knows its owner, and a donkey its master's manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. In other words, an ox and a donkey showed more knowledge, more understanding than the people of God. Why? How? Well, the ox and the donkey know who's in charge and who provides food through the instinct that the Lord gave them. But Israel, they rebelled against their owner, against their provider, and therefore acted with less reason than an ox and a donkey. This is, this is a shame. This is shameful. But listen, as Christians, on the basis of what God has done for us in Christ, our rational response is to offer to Him all that we are. Romans 12.1 but when we don't do this, we sin. When we don't do this, when we sin, we act irrationally. We act worse than domesticated animals like Judah did. And this gets worse. Look at verse 4. They have the spies. The idea is they treated with disrespect, with irreverence, the Holy One of Israel they have turned away from him. Here we see the same idea that we saw in verse two. He brought them up, He provided what they needed, and they abandoned him. Notice again the contrast. He is a faithful one, the holy one of Israel. They were a bunch of ungrateful, disloyal traitors. Again, who was the problem? They were the problem, not him. But every time we sin, every time we sin. We do the same, don't we? Every sin we commit is an ungrateful, irreverent, and rebellious act of treason towards our Lord. This verse helps us to remember how evil sin is. This is a mini theology of sin. And the Lord had already judged them for their sin. This is not the worst part. They persisted in sinning, even though the Lord had brought judgment on them. How do we know that? Verse 5. Isaiah 1, five. Where will you be stricken? The idea is beaten up. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. Verse 6. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Only bruises, welts, and raw wounds not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil here the judgment of god had wounded them it had bruised them they were like someone who has been beaten up and his wounds are flesh are fresh raw not healed i mean you've seen people like that they just went through something terrible and it, it it's it's scary in one occasion we were in venezuela and it was that was a time well i guess it was better then than now I was going to say it was really bad then, but Venezuela is worse now. And we were there to just for, to visit the U.S. Embassy for, uh, for some paperwork. And at the hotel, a guy came into the lobby, and he was all in blood with his shirt all torn, and he claimed that he had been robbed. Of course, you don't know in situations like that if he's telling you the truth or lying, but it just looks awful. And the idea here is that the, they, they were like someone who has been beaten up who has been run over. He's been run over, and still the the, the wounds are fresh. They haven't been healed. And this should encourage us to avoid sin, because due to our sin, the Lord disciplines us, as Hebrews 12 says. And we might feel like this, all beaten up, wounded, with open, fresh wounds. Again, this should motivate us not to take sin lightly, and this is not just, again, an explanation of how bad sin is. This is an explanation of that, yes, but in connection to worship. Notice verse 7. Isaiah 1 7. You see, well, I don't, you might say, I don't see the worship here. You'll see it in a moment. Look at verse 7. We find more details of the judgment of the Lord because of their sin. Isaiah 1 7. Your land is desolate, your cities are burned with fire. Your fields, strangers are devouring them in your presence. It is desolation as overthrown by strangers. Verse 8, the daughter of Zion, this refers to Jerusalem, representing Judah here. The daughter of Zion is left uh, like a shelter. This means like a hut made of branches in a vineyard. Verse 8 at the end, like a watchman's hut in a cucumber field, like a besieged city that is Surrounded by invaders, ready to be attacked. Here verses 7 and 8 show that Judah had been attacked and only Jerusalem remained standing. They were here in a situation of much weakness, extremely vulnerable, like a hut made of branches. Now what attack does this refer to? We really don't know. You say, then why do you ask? Well, this is how we study the Bible. We ask questions from the text. Sometimes we know, other times we don't. But what we know from what verses 1 through 6 say is that this attack was a result of the judgment of the Lord against their sin. The judgment of the Lord because of their sin. And now we come to a wonderful sample of the Lord's sovereign grace. Up to this point, I mean, it's heavy. This is a heavy sermon. This is denouncing sin, talking about judgment. But notice here a wonderful example of our Lord's sovereign grace. If you are struggling to understand how God chooses someone for salvation, this passage may help you. This passage can help you. Because notice what the Lord is saying here. In the first eight verses, our Lord pointed to the deep, persistent Sinfulness of all these Israelites. What did all of them deserve because of their sin? Judgment. What did God owe to all of them? Judgment. And he had given them a taste of that. But notice our Lord's sovereign grace. Verse 9. This is wonderful. Isaiah nine, one nine. Unless the Lord of hosts. Stop there. This is a wonderful name of our Lord. As you remember, this translates the Hebrew phrase Yahweh Tzabaoth. The Spirit of God uses this name throughout the 66 chapters of Isaiah 60 times. 60 times the name the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts, is used in Isaiah. This is to emphasize the sovereign, omnipotent rule of our King, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Tzabaoth. Points to his powerful, absolute control over everything in creation in order to fulfill his purposes. Now, why did he use this title here? Verse 9. Look at it. Unless Yahweh of hosts had left us a few survivors, we will be like Sodom, we will be like Gomorrah. Listen, the same problem of the Israelites at that time is like the same problem of every human being. Unless the omnipotent Sovereign Lord intervenes, all of us will be damned. And this is what we see here. If the Sovereign Lord, listen, if the Sovereign Lord had not chosen to spare a few Israelites, all of them would have ended receiving what they deserved because of their sin. What did they deserve? Death. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah did. And notice that Isaiah included himself among those chosen survivors. Verse 9. We will be like Sodom. We will be like Gomorrah. Just as we see him in chapter 6. He knew that he was a man of unclean lips like the rest of his people. He deserved to be judged just like them. But he was part of the few survivors. Verse 9. That the sovereign omnipotent Lord chose. In other words... The only reason why all of them did not receive what they deserved was sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. None of them deserved to live. We already saw in verses 1-8 through how sinful they were. How much they deserved to die because they had turned their back on the one who loved them deeply. You probably remember that in Romans 9.29, the Holy Spirit applied Isaiah 1, nine to explain the doctrine of unconditional sovereign election of God in the salvation of every believer. And this is, this is so helpful to see it here in its original context. And just as our Lord did in Isaiah 1, if he had not chosen us for salvation, regardless of what we are and what we do, All of us would end up in hell because every single one of us, like the hymn says. But verse 9, again, is placed in the context of worship. This is very important. This reminds us that we don't do a favor to God when we worship. In fact, we don't have the ability or desire on our own to worship in the correct way the true God. Listen carefully. To worship our Lord Jesus Christ is a privilege that only He can grant as He chooses us and cleanses us by His sovereign grace. You say, where do you see that in the text? We'll see that more clearly in a moment in verse 18. But notice again, this is like a light beam of sovereign grace, of love of our Lord in the midst of such a dark passage because of the sin of the Israelites. Notice the hypocrisy of these Israelites. Verse 10. Isaiah 1.10. Hear the word of Yahweh, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom? Gomorrah? Why does God call the rulers and the people of Judah like this? Because they had given themselves to sin just like centuries before Sodom and Gomorrah did in Genesis chapter 19. That's how by the that's how bad they were. He called it's incredible that like he calls them Sodom and Gomorrah. When you think Sodom and Gomorrah, the worst, the worst kinds of sins come to your mind. Why? Because that's what we see in Genesis 19. What we see in other texts like Ezekiel. This is how bad they were. And listen, even even though they were they had given themselves to sin in this way. They were very religious. How do we know that? Verse 11. Isaiah 1, 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Says Yahweh. Please notice that they were not just a few sacrifices. They were multiplied sacrifices. These were many, many sacrifices. They were extremely religious. But externally, of course... Here's the Lord's response to their multiplied sacrifices. Verse 11. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says Yahweh? I have had enough. In Hebrew, this word points to something that reaches the point of becoming unpleasant. What was unpleasant to God? Verse 11. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling? This refers to an act of disrespect. Who requires, verse 12, of you this trampling of my courts, that is of my patios? This refers to the temple. Verse 13, bring your worthless, that means without value, empty, Bring your wordless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. Notice how religious they were. And notice how timely they were in their worship. Everything according to the Lord's commandments under the law. Verse 13, in terms of external worship, in terms of when to offer them, verse 13, that's what this points to. New Moon. This refers to the monthly offerings of Numbers chapter twenty-eight, verse thirteen. Follow the text and Sabbath. This was. This refers to the weekly Sabbath and annual in the Day of Atonement and in the Feast of Tabernacles. Leviticus sixteen and twenty-three, verse thirteen continues the calling of assemblies. This refers. This was on the Sabbath. Leviticus twenty-three. And at the end of verse 13, I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Notice, iniquity mixed with worship. This is an abomination. In one sense, this is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah, you see. Because at least Sodom and Gomorrah were not externally saying they were the people of God and saying they were worshiping the true God. These people were worse in one sense. This is a shame. Verse 14 Isaiah one fourteen. this helps us to understand why the Lord speaks with such strength here. Isaiah one fourteen. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. Look at the word feasts. According to Leviticus 23, these feasts included the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. They celebrated all these feasts at the right time, in the right place, with all the external requirements in place. But this is how the Lord saw their worship, verse 14 at the end. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them, verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. In other words, they were killing people. This is alarming. A lot of external worship and a lot of sin all at the same time. These are strong words, but this is how our Lord views our worship. Listen, when we worship externally while clinging to sin. Even when we may be showing external obedience in many areas. We might be showing kindness to many people. We might be giving We might be singing, we might be studying the Bible hour after hour, attending many Bible studies and services, helping many of our brothers and sisters in need. We might be engaged in a lot of external expressions of worship, but if at the same time we are tolerating sin in our life, this is what the Lord thinks of our worship. It is unpleasant to our Lord. Our worship is disrespectful to Him in those circumstances. Our worship is empty and our worship is an abomination and we cause Him to become weary of our worship and it becomes a burden to our Lord. This is such an important text. This passage clarifies at least three misconceptions about worship. Three classic misconceptions about worship. Number one, amount does not equate acceptance in worship. Amount does not equate acceptance in worship. Notice that the Lord did not say, well, at least they are offering many expressions of worship. No. No, do not think that the amount of your worship somehow pressures the Lord to accept your worship, twists His arm or something. Don't think that because you are engaged in a lot of external religious activity, he feels pressure to accept your worship even when you're living in sin? No. Second misconception that this passage clarifies. External effort does not equate acceptance in worship. External effort does feasts? No. Do not think that because you make the effort to worship the Lord, He will accept your worship even when you live in sin. One more misconception. Number three, external obedience does not offset sin in worship. External obedience does not offset sin in worship. In other words, the Lord does not say, well, there are are multiplied demonstrations of worship even out or canceled. There are multiple demonstrations of sin. No, the Lord hates external worship in a life that is anchored in sin. No, as someone said, the Lord hates your ritual without reality. Has to be without sin, has to be from the heart. And he will touch on this in a few verses. So here we see two actions of Yahweh against Judah that help you to worship without hypocrisy. Number one, in verses 1 through 15, we already saw that Yahweh confronted Judah's hypocrisy. And notice number two in verses 16 through 20, how Yahweh corrected Judah's hypocrisy. Not only did he confront Judah's hypocrisy, he also corrected Judah's hypocrisy. How could Judah correct their worship? Rejected by the Lord, by repenting and seeking the Lord's cleansing. By repenting and seeking the Lord's cleansing. When we are living in sin and at the same time pretend to worship, we need to follow this passage. And in verses 16 through 18, he gives them 10 commandments in Hebrew. Of course, it was in Hebrew, but I mean in Hebrew, in the text, in the Hebrew text, there are commands. Ten Commandments in Hebrew. We could call them the Decalogue of Acceptable Worship. The Decalogue of Acceptable Worship. It's not in the text. It's just so that you try to remember it. Uh, Help to help, somehow help you if he helps you. But look at these Ten Commandments. Look at these closely. Don't take your eyes off the text. You can number them if you want with your pen or pencil. First of 10, wash yourselves. In verse 16. First of 10, wash yourselves. Second of 10, verse 16, next phrase. Make yourselves clean. Third command of 10, listen to this. In verse 16, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Stop there. When you do, park it here for a moment. How deep do the eyes of the Lord see? As deep as the heart. Of course, the Lord sees the heart. Our Lord never suffers from short-sightedness. Some of us, when we go to the ophthalmologist and we walk in, we try to memorize the last two lines maybe of the, you know, the chart (laughs) so that we don't hear the words, you need new glasses. Our Lord never needs glasses, of course. His sight is perfect. He sees in ultra, ultra high definition Not only the outside, but also the inside. He wants obedience, listen, in his sight. Not only in the sight of human eyes. Verse 19 calls them and calls us to repent from the heart at the deepest level. This is a call to forsake our sin at the deepest level. At the level of our thoughts, our desires, our motives. But look at the end of verse 16. Here comes the fourth commandment of 10. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, fifth command of 10, learn to do good. Sixth command of 10, verse 17, seek justice. This refers to legal justice. In those days, they had to do this. They were under the law. And seventh command of 10, reprove their ruthless or correct oppression. Eighth command of 10, defend the orphan. Again, all of this had been commanded to them by the Lord. In the law. This was nothing new. And notice at the end of verse 17. The ninth command of ten. Plead or defend the case for the widow. And here comes the last of the ten commandments. Of what we have called acceptable worship. In verse 18. This is one of the best known verses in scripture. This is wonderful as you know. But notice the context. This is powerful. Here comes the perfect work of our perfect king. Related to worship. Here's a commandment. Verse 18. Look at it. Come now. Why? Why is this important? The order is important. As it is always the case in scripture. Come now. That is after verses 16 and 17. After they had shown true repentance. Come now. Verse 18. And let us reason together. Let us discuss together. The idea is. That they will recognize, they would recognize what is right. Verse 18 continues. Come now and let us reason together, says Yahweh. And listen to this wonderful truth at the end of verse 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, a deep red, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, same idea. They will be like wool. Here, sin is presented as if it was a red stain on a piece of fabric, like a stain of blood. And the work of the Lord of cleansing and forgiveness here cleans that piece of fabric and leaves it white as snow like wool. You say, well, I can do that with oxyclean." No, ladies, <laughs> this is spiritual, not physical. But notice how God cleanses and forgives the one who repents. If his sins are like a piece of fabric with a stain that is deep red, the Lord washes them to the point of making that fabric not pink, but perfectly white as snow, as wool, as if, as if, as if it had never been stained. Some of us clean and stain and make the fabric worse, right? I mean, you get splattered on your tie. You run to the bathroom, you do, and you try to, you know, you do the emergency uh, operation of cleaning, put in some soap, and then it grows. And then you think, well, <laughs> yeah, of course, you know, the water there. What? Well, and then you think you're comforted by the fact that with time it's gonna dry and it's gonna look like it was never there. But surprise, a couple of hours later, it is worse. You try to save the, you know, the, the whole laundry deal, the whole dry cleaner deal. And then you just have to resort to the Bible operation. And well, maybe you put your Bible here and you look more godly. <laughs> and if all else fails, I mean, after you look a little weird, you do the Napoleon move <laughs> and cover the, cover the tie. But as you know, the, the attempt, it doesn't always work. But notice here that the white color has no trace of the red stain. The idea is that you look at it and you would have no clue that it had been stained. How is this possible? Because God would treat them as if they had never had that red stain. As if they had never sinned. And he can do that because he would treat them as if they had lived the perfect life of the Lamb, of the servant of Yahweh. You say, how do we know this? Because that's what the Lord says 52 chapters later. Where? In Isaiah 53. This perfect forgiveness would only be possible because of the servant who would be punished in their place. This Beloved brothers and sisters, this verse points to penal substitution and justification for the Israelites who were the original audience who were not saved. This was a call to salvation. And for those Israelites who were already saved, who were part of the original audience, this was a call to sanctification. But this is how the Lord does it with every one of us who are believers. This is wonderful. He treats us as if... We had never, ever sinned as if our life was white as snow. As if we had obeyed him perfectly all the time. Like who? Like Christ. Just as he treated our beloved Lord on the cross as if he had lived our life of sin. Second Corinthians 5.21. It's the only way. It's the only way to have a fabric Using the illustration here. White as snow. After it had been stained red. Without any trace. He made him who knew no sin. To be seen on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness. Of God in him. It is only on the basis. Remember this. It is only on the basis of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And what he has done. That God can treat us like this. This is not on the basis Of some human act. It is only through faith in him. And listen. Just as in verse 9. We saw sovereign grace. In electing certain Israelites. By implication we see it again in this perfect forgiveness. Of course this is explained later throughout Isaiah. And in the rest of scripture. And in the whole of scripture really. This cleansing work, this salvation, this forgiveness is a sovereign work of the grace of God, just as His choosing is, in verse 9. This is, I mean, this is again like the hymn says, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. This is wonderful. This is how our Lord saves and cleanses us and forgives us and justifies us. What a majestic display of sovereign love. You see, this is incredible. Only the Lord can do this. We're just as sinful as those Israelites who were described in this chapter. All this is true. But remember the context. Remember, this is not just a series of lessons of different doctrines. Oh, he spoke already about sin and then about election. And now he's speaking about forgiveness and justification and other things. No, no, no. This is so, yes, That's true. But in the context, remember, the Lord is talking about correcting their worship. And so, like the Israelites, God does not accept your worship if you are living in sin. In fact, unless your worship, listen to this. You can wake up now, some of you, if you were praying. (laughs) Listen to this. This is important. Thank you for praying for for the preachers. <laughs> Listen. Unless your worship is perfectly pure, he hates it. Unless your worship is perfectly pure, he does not accept it. How then can we offer perfect worship even if we are saved when we still sin so much? What is the answer? It's right here. Obviously, it's not stated. But he points to the answer. And the answer is this, only through the perfect sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord is pleased with our worship only when he has washed the scarlet stain of our sin in the blood of Christ, so that as we are in Christ, our life is white as snow, and then we can express worship that pleases him. Remember, this is really 1 Peter two 5. 1 Peter 2, five. We offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the idea. And once we are saved by His grace, we need to keep our lives clean in order to offer worship that pleases Him. And this is where Romans 12.1 comes into place, among other texts. Remember in Romans 12.1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, these are the mercies, remember, that we see in Romans chapters 1 through 11. All those blessings of salvation in Christ. By those mercies, by those expressions of mercy that you have partook, that you have received. Sorry, the Spanish betrays me here and there. <laughs> Better that I don't speak, start speaking in Russian, but that would be dangerous. But the idea is this. In Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, on the basis of all that the Lord has given you in Christ, I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Another text, remember, very important, which is really a parallel to Isaiah 1, when the Lord said, In Matthew 5, the same idea. First you repent, then you worship. Matthew 5, 23 and 24, remember? In the Sermon of the Mount, Matthew 5, 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, what do you do? You say, well, he doesn't, man. I'm going to make the effort. I'm sure the Lord will understand. No, 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 no. Leave your offering there before the altar and Go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. First, you deal with your sin. First, you repent. First, you come to the Lord for cleansing as you come to Him through Christ. And then you offer, you present your offering. Then you worship. Now, notice that here in Isaiah 1, again, the order is key. You see it throughout Scripture. Here in Isaiah 1. First comes repentance, verses sixteen and seventeen. Then forgiveness, verse eighteen. And again, all this by God's sovereign grace, verse nine. But we are also responsible, as all of Scripture says. It of course, no one who comes, no one can come to the Father except through me. I mean, and uh, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. John six forty four. We know that is the grace of God and. There is a responsibility. You need to repent. Again, all by the grace of God. He gives you the ability. He's the one who grants you the faith, the repentance. And scripture also teaches that you have to repent. You have to believe you are responsible. In a sense, think about this. In Isaiah one nine. you see how he's pointing to God's sovereign work. Remember? Of electing grace. And then down here, when we get to... Isaiah 1, 16 through 18 he's telling them, wash yourselves, repent, you'll be clean, repent, look for God's forgiveness. What is, why is he saying that? First, he's saying, this is totally a work of God's grace, electing. Unless, verse 9, unless the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors. And then he says, come and repent. This is like Matthew 11. Remember in Matthew 11, where the Lord said, You can only know the Father by the sovereign work of the Son. And then he said, come unto me, all those of you who are... Remember, it's the same idea. Yes, there's the sovereign work of God always. And you're responsible to repent. And seek his forgiveness. Always by his grace. And verses 19 and 20 close with a warning. Look how the passage finishes. Isaiah 119. If you consent and obey. What does this mean? If you consent and obey. Remember what he just told him in verses 1 through 18. If you repent from your sin that makes your worship disgusting to God. And are perfectly cleansed through faith by the Lord's work alone. And show it in a holy life. That's the idea of if you consent and obey. If you consent and obey, verse 19, you will eat the best of the land. This refers to abundant crops. Deuteronomy 28. Remember, they were living under the law. Since they were living under the old covenant, they would enjoy this. But, verse 20, Isaiah 120, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Stop there. This means that they will be killed by countries that would conquer them. Again, this is not like the Lord is pulling out a white rabbit out of a hat and telling, Surprise, I'm going to. No, no, no. They already knew this. He had warned them of this. He was just being faithful to His promise. He warned them back. Remember in Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy 28, in other words, remember the context, their false worship would be punished by death. This is serious. This is how serious the Lord takes worship. This is how serious the Lord takes his worship. He did it with Nadam and Abihu. Remember in Leviticus 10 with the strange fire. He did it with Yusa, with the ark. You might think, well, I'm glad we're not under the Old Covenant. Well, even under the New Covenant, on this side of the cross, the Lord still kills people who offer worship while living in sin. You say, what? Yes. You have Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, remember? Some in 1 Corinthians 11, who partook of the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Remember? Some of them were weak. Some of them were sick. And some were sleeping Not in the service, that means that they, the Lord had, maybe somewhere, but there in the context, the Lord had killed them. It's the same idea. Does this scare you? It should. Our Lord wants us to worship Him with joy, with gratitude, and holy fear. Again, this is nothing that is only found here in Scripture. This is reiterated throughout Scripture. Hebrews 12:28 and 29 same idea Hebrews 12:28 and 29 say let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God listen an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire Yes there has to be an element of holy healthy fear Yes, we come boldly to the throne of grace. But we have to come with reverence. Under remembering who are we approaching. Who is granting us the privilege by grace to worship him. Isaiah 120, look at how he closes. If they refuse to repent... And persisted in their sinful worship, the Lord would kill them. How sure could they be that this would happen? Absolutely sure. How do we know that? Verse 20 at the end. Truly, the mouth of Yahweh has spoken. I mean, no doubt. No doubt. To worship our Lord Jesus Christ is a privilege that only He can grant. As he chooses us and cleanses us by his sovereign grace. And we have the responsibility of offering worship with gratitude and holy fear. And remember this text. When we sin, we think and act in a way that is irrational, ungrateful, disrespectful, crooked, and rebellious against our Lord. Our sin causes our worship to be worthless, disgusting, and a burden that is abominable and stained in His eyes. And only the sovereign one, the holy sovereign one in His grace can grant us repentance and cleansing and forgiveness of our sins on the basis of the perfect life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we can be qualified to worship Him. We need to repent from our sin in order to worship our king without hypocrisy. And if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you must repent from your sin and seek God's forgiveness through Christ so that God can receive your worship and so that you do not end up in the eternal hell that you deserve because of your sin. And if you are a believer, if you're a Christian who's pretending to worship our king, While clinging to sin at the same time, you expose yourself to his discipline. You need to confess your sin. You need to lay it aside by his grace so that you can offer to him worship that pleases him through our Lord Jesus Christ, not only in Christmas, but all the year, all the time, every second, every day of life that the Lord grants us by his grace. Let's pray to finish. Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for this wonderful passage that reminds us of the reality of our sin, how serious it is, how much we need to hear this. You know our tendency to minimize, to reduce, to lighten the seriousness, the weight, the gravity of our sin. Thank you, Lord, also for showing us again that if he was not because of you, we would all be damned. We bless your name. We thank you for your sovereign election. Thank you for your perfect cleansing work, for your forgiveness. Thank you, our beloved Lord Jesus Christ, for your perfect life, for your death, for dying to pay the punishment of those of us who believe, for raising, for our justification. Thank you, Lord, for your word that is so powerful, so perfect, so rich. We pray that your spirit will apply it according to the need that we all have. If we have not confessed our sin, if we are approaching you in worship in a similar manner as these Israelites were, and we haven't confessed it to you, we pray that we will confess our sin. You will have mercy. You will forgive us. We thank you, Lord, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we pray that if there's someone this morning who doesn't know you, that your spirit will open their understanding and they will see that they cannot offer anything to you but their sin. And they will cry out for mercy, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that they might be saved and be then qualified by your grace to worship you and you will be pleased with their worship we give you the glory in the name of our beloved lord amen